we're going to transition into a time of worship through the teaching of God's word. And I am going to um, read for us our Bible passage from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. Amen. Thank you, Myung. It's very encouraging to see new groups being launched, new leaders raised up. Super encouraging. And uh, oh, did Caleb leave the room? I was going to say he could spend his millions of dollars on my kids' leftover Halloween candy stash that I'm still trying to get rid of. So that would, we would accept that as currency here. Good to have you guys. If you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really good to see you. And today, we are wrapping up a little short teaching series that we've been doing called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. We'll wrap up this week, and then next week we begin Advent, the season of anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. And I do want to just get one thing off of my chest, a confession. I put up Christmas lights this last week uh, before Thanksgiving, so it was burdening me. I didn't want to let that be troubling me in the background of my conscience before I taught from God's Word, but you know what? We need a little light sometimes, so it's all good. Uh, what the reason and the heart, the intention behind this teaching series is, you know, in my time as a follower of Jesus and even as a pastor, I've noticed that sometimes Christians have a bad habit of just only reading the Old, or sorry, the New Testament, because the Old Testament can feel a little foreign, a little scary at times. And so uh, we believe as a church that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. It's useful for us. And so my aim and my goal in these teachings, and for all of us, is to make it so that you feel confident to go to the Word of God for yourself to encounter Him in the the pages of the scripture, that you would not be more dependent upon me or any other Bible teacher, but more directly dependent upon God through his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so that's my aim. That's my goal today is to help you feel confidence in going to God through the scriptures. And the topic that we're going to do today is called seeing Jesus in the inversions. And I'm going to explain more of that as we get on. I do also want to address one thing. For those of you who are joining online, I was texted a photo of that slide and my pants blending into one when I stand right about here. So just get that out of the way right now. I'm very sorry. Uh, I'll do better in the future, I promise. So church, let's bring our hearts before the Lord right now and let's seek him uh, in this time of looking at his word. God, we bring our hearts to you right now. Lord, for all who are burdened, for all who have worries and cares, for all who have fears. Lord, we just bring our restless hearts before you right now. God, I ask and I pray that each and every single one of us would 
would see Jesus in the pages of the scripture, but we would also see our own hearts in light of your truth of your word. For myself, God, would you guard my lips and help me to only preach that which is in line with the truth of the scripture. Give us all hearts to see and to love and to treasure Jesus more today. It's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. So I grew up in a musical family. My Mom is a piano teacher still to this day. My dad is a drummer, which is kind of like a musician. And we've had music in our house since the time I was the littlest kid. And a um, lot of musical artistry, but I never really got involved in anything of kind of visual artistry. Later on in life, my mom got really into painting. She really likes to do watercolors, some oils. And she's, doggone it, she's actually pretty good at it. And over the years, she's taught my children how to paint and and we now have like a big bucket of like painting supplies for whenever grandma and grandpa come to visit and they get it out and they make a big mess and do watercolors and doggone it if some of my kids aren't pretty good at this as well and they really seem to enjoy it and I still can't meanwhile write my own name legibly but this is cool they're 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 doing you know visual art and one of the things that learned about and heard about is this concept in visual art of negative space. Now, if you are an artist or a graphic designer or something, you could do a much better job than me of explaining it. But the idea is, whenever you're doing some sort of a painting or a piece of visual art, you have the main subject, the thing that you're looking at, and you call that the positive space, and then all the other stuff around it is the negative space that kind of gives life and shape and, and direction to the thing you're trying to paint. And actually, if you're particularly skilled or if you know how to do it, you can paint certain things or draw certain things without even drawing the item itself. You can just kind of draw everything around it, and that negative space can kind of bring the subject to the foreground. Maybe the closest thing I can relate it to in music is the idea of the space between the notes, right? You have the notes, ba 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 ba, and then there's space. And that gives shape to it. And then Beethoven does that again for like nine minutes straight. And it's just the same thing over and over again. But the point being, we have to pay attention not only to the thing itself, but to the the negative spaces in order to get a fuller picture in our minds. Now, this is not a trick question. This is not a trick question at all. I'm legitimately asking you the Sunday school answer. What is the main object of focus of the Bible? Jesus, good job. You all could be students in our kids' ministry, and maybe you should teach in our kids' ministry because you got that one right. Good. Uh, the, the whole point of the Bible is that God creates humanity to, to rule and reign alongside of him as his image bearers, as his royal partners, that God wants, wants humanity to be his partner in governing over creation. But humanity does not do what we were supposed to do. Adam and Eve, they, they transgress uh, and they, they fall into sin and the world is now subject to the bondage of decay because of that transgression and there's brokenness and there's fallenness and every time it seems like somebody will kind of rise to the surface be able to pick up where humanity left off. They just continue to fail over and over and over again until finally Jesus shows up. And he is, the, the apostles tell us, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the true image bearer. He's the true human being. And he is the Messiah or the anointed one, the one who is the ruler over all things in true partnership with God. The whole Bible is focused on this figure. The Bible tells lots of different stories, but the main unifying th- uh, thread is this need for a rescuer, the need for a redeemer, the need for the Messiah. And all of the Hebrew scriptures, what commonly is referred to 
was the Old Testament, are, are kind of doing all of this negative space, filling out a need so that when Jesus arrives on the scene in the pages of the gospel accounts, he's the positive space. He's the one that we've been looking for this whole entire time. In theology, we call this type or typology. It's kind of a fancy word in theological circles, but it's actually a, a biblical word. You can see it in places like Romans chapter 5, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul, he's in a big theological discourse about death and Adam and Jesus and all this stuff. And he just says, I'll pull this little snippet out. He says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He, Adam, is a type of the coming one. That word in the Greek can be translated as an example or an image or even a pattern. You find this word and this concept all over the New Testament. Think of Jesus talking with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 14, before the famous John 3, 16, two verses earlier, he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so also what? The Son of Man must be lifted up. This moment of the serpent on a pole is a type of the Son of Man's work. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul talks about how the people of Israel drank water that came out of a rock. And Paul says the rock was Christ. It was Jesus in a typological sense. Or Hebrews chapter 8, the author of Hebrews talks about the tabernacle is, is like a type of the real heavenly dwelling place, the true temple of God. There's all this imagery of, of something that helps you see something else, namely Jesus. Are you, are you guys tracking with me on this? I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but just the idea of when you're reading the Bible, these different things are meant to point us to the fulfillment in Jesus. Now, you can see this particularly in the lives of certain maybe heroes of the faith, right? Isaac, the chosen promised son of Abraham who carries the wood for the sacrifice up the hill where he would face death. Oh, what, is that? what does that make me think of? You know? or, or Joseph, the one who is rejected and hated by his brothers, but then through his suffering and hardship, he's able to bring redemption and rescue to all the people around him. Again, you're like, oh, I think I'm picking up on something here. David, the shepherd from humble circumstances who rises up and becomes the king over the people of Israel. Now, Hopefully you're, you're kind of familiar with that type of Bible reading. If not, you know, this is a great thing to discuss this week in your community groups. But here's, here's where I want to take us today. Sometimes you're reading your Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Okay, great. I can see Jesus in the storyline of David. I can see Jesus in the storyline of, you know, Isaac. But you come across some person or some situation in the Bible, and then there's like that record needle scratching sound. And you just think to yourself, why on earth is that in my Bible? Anyone ever had that experience? What, what, is, what is this person doing here? What is this negative story? And, and frankly, in my, again, this is in my experience, I think there are a lot of people that just kind of skip past those stories, skip past those passages, jump over to something easier to read like Psalms or Colossians or something. But here's the point that I, I hope to make today and I hope to invite you into, and it's simply this. Even the negative spaces can draw us in to see Jesus if we have eyes to see. Even the negative spaces can be a place where we encounter our Savior Jesus, but we have to have eyes to see.
So I want to speak kind of in some, you know, broad strokes in three different examples from the Old Testament, okay? Uh, put the references up on the screen. You can go read the stories later if you want to dive in a little bit more. But I want to highlight three particular stories of people where you just look at it like, what? what is happening here? Why is God using this person? What are they doing in my Bible? So let's start with Samson, the worst rescuer, okay? You can find a story in the book of Judges. Chapter 13, a little bit beyond, if you were around a few years ago when we went through the, the, the book of Judges, you might remember that Samson, boy, he, he has a real promising start. His parents are, are godly people. An angel shows up, says, I'm going to use this child that you're going to be born with to begin to redeem people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. If you know anything about the Philistines, the Philistines like are, you know, like at this point in Israel's history, they're like the bad guy of all bad guys. They literally wear armor that has scales like a snake on it. And you're like, oh, that's like Genesis 3 snake stuff. And, but they're being crushed by it. And God's going to uh, use this child who's going to be born. It's like, man, what a promising start. What an amazing start. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to have a, a vow to be set apart, even within the set-apart people of Israel. No razor will cut his hair. He won't drink any wine or anything alcoholic. He'll be completely devoted to service of God. And you get barely 20 seconds into the story of Samson before you realize that he is a complete moron. And that's the technical theological term for it, okay? He is 100% just driven by his desires, Sees, wants, takes. Right out of the gate, the very first thing that happens is he gets married to a Philistine woman. And God had forbade that, not because of anything, you know, about ethnicity or nationality, but it had everything to do with worship of the one true God. The people of Israel are to worship Yahweh God alone and to not intermarry so that your, their hearts would not be pulled to worshiping false gods. But what does Samson do? He gets himself immediately, very first story, like I'm not making this up, the very first story. That's the first thing he does. Well, and then there turns into intrigue and the wedding party and he has to go kill some guys and take their coats. And then he's really mad and then they take the wife and the, the dad, like, it's like repossession. It's so weird back then. But he like takes the wife and keeps her and then gives her away in marriage to someone else and Samson shows up and he's angry. So what does he do? He lights a bunch of torches and ties them to foxes' tails and sends them out through the vineyard to just, I mean, literally scorched earth policy here. Like, I'm just gonna, oh, I can't have her? I'm gonna burn your entire village down. I remember as a kid, I mean, there's other stories too. I can keep going. Uh, you guys remember the story of where Samson is like trapped in the city and in order to like save his own life, he has to like rip the doors of the city gates off and he carries them off. And I remember as a kid, like hearing the story in the children's Bible and be like, how great is that? And why, what a strong guy and da, 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 da. Do you remember why he had to escape from the city in the first place? Because he was visiting a prostitute. That's not good leader of Israel behavior, just in case there was any questions here in the room about what the people who are going to rescue and redeem Israel should be doing. And then, at the end, he listens to a band called the Plain White Tees and goes, hey there, Delilah, and then starts meeting up with her. I'm sorry, I was so bad. I'm, I'm t I apologize. But he, does. He, he meets up with Delilah, who's like, oh, you're so strong. I wish I, I wish I knew why you were so strong. Meanwhile, she's getting money from the, the people who are in charge of the Philistines. If you just tell me the secret of your strength, and then, like, what does he think is going to happen? And so he lies to her a couple times, and eventually he gives in. His head is shaved. He's captured. They gouge out his eyes, and he's thrown in prison. And then it says that his hair begins to grow back, and his strength begins to return to him. And there is a festival at the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god, and he prays a prayer 
Lord, let me one last time have his strength. And some commentators and scholars even note that the prayer itself is pretty self-focused, pretty selfish. And so with his last ounce of strength, he presses against the pillars. The temple collapses, killing him and killing all of the Philistine overlords. And you get to the end of the story like, man, that could have been so much different. Think about, think about this. We can, we can compare and contrast Samson and Jesus, right? Here's some similarities, right? Some similarities. First of all, the angelic birth announcement. I mean, we're about to head into the Christmas season. It's, it's not very often that an angel shows up to the parents and said, here's going to be this special, unique child that's born. He's, he's to live a, a set-apart, dedicated life. And Jesus, later, similar, a life that is completely devoted to service of God. And Samson's death defeats evil. And that also points us to Jesus. He has a a death that does a work of crushing the serpent. But think about the contrast. Think about the negative space. Oh my goodness. First of all, Samson served only himself. Samson lived only to fulfill his own appetites and his own desires. He served only himself. But Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Samson was used by God kind of in spite of himself, right? It's like Samson could have not, if you tried to tell Samson to oppose the will of God, what else could he have done, right? And yet Jesus says, I only do that, which I see my father doing. I and the father are one. And the story of Samson ends with a death. But how many of you are glad to know that the story of Jesus does not end in death? Because after he took the the, the penalty on the cross that paid for our sins, he rose on the third day, he appeared to more than 500 of his disciples, he ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father, where today he rules and reigns over all things, and one day, friends, he will return, and we will hear the sound of a trumpet and the voice of an archangel, and the sky will be split open, and we will meet with him and be with him face to face forever. This is some good news, friends. So the story of Samson kind of ends with a whimper. The story of Jesus ends with perfection. Let's do another one. Saul, the worst king. And maybe I'd put a little asterisk here. He might not actually be the worst king because I think there are some others that come later, like Ahab comes to mind. But he's the worst king that we have 23 chapters written about in the Bible. So, A lot of material to examine there. Saul, you might remember, was the people's choice for king. After the period of the judges, the people said, we want a king to rule over us. And the people looked around and said, "Mm, that guy, because he's tall and good looking. So Saul also gets off to kind of a good start. He starts off as a decisive leader. He's chosen by the people. He's beloved. Actually, at one point, says that he's filled with the spirit and starts to prophesy, to, to be able to speak truth about who God is. But over the course of his life, we see this long descent into madness. And really, it all starts with a heart of fear. He has a fearful heart, fearful of loss of position, loss of power, loss of uh, uh, recognition. This heart of fear leads him to have jealousy of David and the praise that David gets as, a, as the young conqueror who defeats Goliath. It leads him to do things like offer a sacrifice that he should not have offered. He shouldn't have done it. He took on a role that didn't belong to him. And because of that, God says to Saul, I'm removing my choice from you. You are no longer my chosen king, and I'm going to give it to David, and I will establish his throne forever and ever. And the very end of Saul's life, he, you know, he, just, he is 
lost. He's visiting a medium, a, a, a spiritist, a witch, essentially, to go get advice for the battle. And, 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 and he is, goes into that battle, and they're losing badly. And so he tells his armor bearer, his, his right-hand man, you just kill me. Just run me through with your sword and kill me. And the armor bearer won't do it because that's shameful. And so Saul just falls on his own sword and dies, and that's kind of the end of it. Again, let's do some similarities and some contrast. There are similarities with Saul. I, I see in similarities, in, by the way, all these similarities and contrasts, there's probably many, many more, and these would be great things to talk about in your, in your groups. These are just some of the ones that, again, trying to show you how you can think through these stories. Saul was loved by the people. Early on in the story, people really loved King Saul. And actually, you can see parallels with that, the way that people loved Jesus, particularly after he does things like, oh, I don't know, feed a crowd of 5,000. There's a point where the people really are, the crowds love Jesus. Saul was, it says, filled with the Spirit. Legitimately, at one point in his life, was filled with the Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Spirit as well. And yes, Saul, at various points, was a strong victorious king, and similarly to Jesus, who is our ultimate strong, victorious king. But boy, are there some contrasts. Think about the contrast of Saul's physical beauty and his spiritual poverty. This is a guy that was literally called out in the pages of the scripture. He's a good-looking man, but inside he is quite poor. The prophet Isaiah actually says of Jesus, we don't, obviously we don't have a portrait of Jesus or know exactly what he looked like, but the prophet Isaiah said that there's nothing in the Messiah's appearance that would make him particularly attractive to us. I don't know that that means Jesus was an ugly looking person, but just not striking in the way that King Saul was. Jesus, Jesus got people's attention through something much deeper than just being a good looking person. Saul was driven by fear. What, what is it that drove our Lord and Savior Jesus, to go to the cross. What was it that was set before him that made him endure the cross, the author of Hebrews says? Joy. For the joy that was set before him. I always just love that. I know that the cross was ultimate suffering and ultimate agony, and I know that Jesus cried out, you know, things like, like why have I been forsaken by you, Father? But, but in, in the mix there somewhere too is joy of being able to bring us back to his heavenly Father. And Saul's death was a selfish death only for himself. Saul's death was, I don't want to be captured and tortured, so I'm just going to kill myself. And Jesus was selfless in allowing himself to be tortured at the hands of wicked men so that we might be forgiven. All right, we got time. Can we do one more? Done. Sam, I'm I'm going to because I prepared the notes already, so we're just going to do it. Uh, Let's talk about Jonah, the worst prophet. Holy smokes. Okay, Jonah gets a calling. We actually heard it in our scripture reading. He's called by God to go to Nineveh. And if you don't know about Nineveh, Nineveh is the capital city of the empire of Assyria. And if you don't know about Assyria, you should count your blessings because they're bad, real bad. They were, um, they had a particular reputation for being cruel. When they would capture people, there's, I mean, there's reports and stories from antiquity of them, you know, peeling people's skin off, inventing early like prototype of crucifixion, the rack, all these sorts of things. Um, they were very cruel, and they had treated the people of Israel very cruelly over the years. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, hey, I want you to go preach a message of judgment and restoration to these wicked people. I want you to go outside of the people of Israel and go tell them about the one true God. And what does Jonah do? 
Heck no. I'm going to get on a ship. I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. I'm going to go to Spain. I hear Spain's nice this time of year. Is Spain going to be nice this time of year, Steve and MJ? Are you sure hope it is? All right, let us know how things are in Tarsus. Are you running from the Lord on something? Anyways, sorry, they're going to Spain soon. Uh, Happy anniversary, by the way. He's resistant. He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And actually, there's such great irony in the, in the book of Jonah because these pagan sailors come to him and are like, is there like a one true God maybe we could pray to? And it's like, literally, Jonah, you're the prophet who's supposed to be telling him about the one true God. This is like fish jumping into the boat, like start getting to work. And he's like, no, I would rather die. I would rather you throw me into the water than let somebody else come to know about the one true God. So they throw him into the water. But he's such a bad prophet that he can't even die when he's thrown into the sea because the Lord provides a great beast from the sea, a great fish or a whale or however it's translated, to come and swallow him up where he hangs out for a while, has some repentance. You can read a a prayer of repentance at the beginning of chapter 3. He is unceremoniously expelled from the whale onto the beach to where he goes to Nineveh and preaches what is, in my estimation, the worst sermon ever recorded. It's literally like seven words. 40 days, repent, or the city will be destroyed. And you kind of just like, you can read it with that tone. It's like, ugh. Well, you know what happens? <laughs> Revival breaks out. Because the power's not in the person, the power's in the message and the God who's behind that message. And so re- revival breaks out. People start repenting left and right. Like it's, it's, it's the thing to do in Nineveh. In fact, it says there, it's so funny. Jonah is funny. It it says they put sackcloth and ashes on themselves. You guys know what sackcloth is? It's a type of uh, fabric that's made out of like really itchy goat hair. And uh, it's unpleasant. You put on, you know, ashes on your head, this uncomfortable clothing as a symbol of repentance. But it says in the book of Jonah that they were so repentant, they actually put sackcloth on their animals. They put goat hair on their goats. I don't care who you are. That's funny. That's hilarious. So what does Jonah do? He sees this revival breaking out, all this repentance. He goes and sets up shop outside of the city where he just whines. I, you, I knew it, God. I knew what you were like with all your mercy and grace. Is, <laughs> Jonah is the worst. He's upset by people repenting and coming to faith in the one true God. And then what does God do? God meets him with grace in that moment. He lets, there's this, he's like, Jonah's like out in the desert grumbling and whining and he's sweltering. So God in his grace lets this plant grow up over him that offers him some shade so at least Jonah can whine but not be so sweaty. And then a worm comes and eats the plant and Jonah whines again and God kind of, the story of Jonah ends with God saying to Jonah, like, don't you care about these people? And don't you care about their cattle? That's the last thing God asks in the book of Jonah. It's like, man, the worst. So again, similarities. Jonah is a prophet of God. He has a message to speak on behalf of God like Jesus. And like Jesus, Jonah spends three days in the grave, in Sheol. And even closer, Jesus, uh, like Jonah, like Jesus, has new life on the other side of the grave. In fact, Jesus himself uses Jonah's story to relate to himself. But the contrast, the negative space, Jonah is unwilling to love his enemies. He is unwilling to love the Ninevites, the Assyrians. Friends, how many of you are thankful that Jesus was willing to love those who were his enemies? Jonah was, again, resistant to God's will. 
Jesus only did God's will. Jonah was bitter about God's mercy and grace, and we are told that Jesus gives more grace freely, joyfully to all who will come and ask. We could keep doing more, but hopefully you're picking up on this pattern that you can see Jesus not just in the good examples, but in the bad examples, not just in the positive space, but in the negative space. We can see Jesus, the best redeemer who lived his life in service of others, who, who gave his life to save us. We can see Jesus, the best king, not driven by fear or jealousy, not using his authority to lord over people, but serving and being selfless in his sacrifice. And we can see Jesus, the best prophet who most clearly communicates truth about God was swallowed by death but rose again on the third day. We get to see Jesus, friends. Now, I want to ask a question in the few minutes we have left to try to bring this to bear because what I've done thus far is hopefully helped you read your Bibles better. And if not, send me an email. We can follow up with some more resources. But I, I hope that as you're reading your Bible this week, and, and by the way, uh, I think you should read your Bible this week. Hot take from a pastor. Uh, but there's, there's other things, however. Because you're going to have other aspects of your life besides just reading the Bible. And you're going to encounter negative spaces in your life. Could you imagine being someone, let's, let's practice a little sanctified imagination right now. Could you imagine being someone who was living during the time of Samson. And I imagine that news would have gotten around, oh, an angel visited Manoah and his wife, and man, there's a really promising guy. Oh man, he's a Nazarite? He's taking that vow of being a Nazarite? Oh, I mean, he's strong. Seems like he can win a lot of battles. Maybe he, maybe he could be the one to redeem us out from under the crushing boot of the Philistines. Maybe he's the one. Sa- Wait, Samson did what? He married who? What is, what is happening here? Wait, he got caught in what city visiting who? He did, he did what with Delilah? What is, like, what is going on? Could you imagine just being someone, an Israelite during that time, and just being really frustrated? Like, I thought that he was supposed to be the one to rescue us. I can imagine them being frustrated and disappointed. Let me, let me ask for a quick show of hands here. How many of you have ever faced a situation in your life where things didn't go the way you had hoped or expected? Have you ever struggled to see Jesus in that negative space? That friendship that used to be so close now is fractured? That romantic relationship that started out so sweet and turned into some of the deepest pain you've ever known? The, the, the business you were going to start so you'd have more financial freedom, just not producing the resources that you need to provide. Societal upheaval and just wishing there was somebody who could lead in the society to bring some order and some peace where there's a lot of chaos. Family members that you used to be so close with, you grew up with, now just not even on speaking terms. Church disagreements and conflicts where you hope there could be just such close community and relationships? Am I, am, I, am I stepping on some toes in a loving way right now? The question is this, how do we see Jesus in the negative spaces of our own lives? 
We read the Bible to be trained in this so that when we encounter these things in our own lives, we can see him. And for so many of us, myself included, we come to these problems, we come to these difficulties, and it's so easy to slide into the rut of, where are you, God? What are you doing? This is not how I saw it going. This is not what I hoped for. This is not what I expected. Where are you, Jesus? But if we're learning to read the scriptures to see Jesus in those negative spaces, then we can have confidence that Jesus is with us in our own lives in these negative spaces. Are you with me, church? Are you with me on this? Like, like we can literally ask, we can legitimately ask, God, what are you doing in this space? What are you doing? Now, I think there are many things that we could say that Jesus is doing in those things. And sometimes it's hard to have the perspective to see it. I want to simply highlight three. Three things that I can confidently say that in the negative spaces of our lives, Jesus is doing. The first one is this. He's growing our character. He's shaping us. He's taking off some rough edges. James chapter one, among many verses I could have pointed to, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Oh, yeah, right in my flesh. Let's get right on that. Great joy, various trials, love it. That was my sarcasm voice. Because, listen to what James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance having its full effect Uh, that you may become mature and complete, lacking nothing. How many of you can admit that you are not as mature or complete as you could be? Okay? And while we like to think that in our times of success and the times of joys, oh, we're really doing well, it's actually in those times of hardship where we get to see the really, the true character underneath, what's really going on in our hearts, and where God does his work of shaping us, changing us, and growing us. We all have a little prosperity gospel preacher in our hearts that says, well, I thought I deserved better. I thought I was doing good. I thought I should have this, right? You guys know some of like the really egregious versions of the prosperity gospel. If you just tithe enough, God will give you a jet. Okay. But that, that false gospel worms its way into our hearts all the time where we think we're owed a hardship-free life. And in those times, God is growing and shaping our character. That's one thing I can say confidently that he's doing. The second thing I can say confidently that he is doing is he's increasing our reliance upon him. Now, we know that um, God uses people in our lives, that God uses, God even uses the money we have, all the resources we have. He uses these things to help sustain us and provide for us. But in the ultimate sense, like our brother Myung was, was sharing with us a minute ago, we are ultimately reliant upon God. Everything we have, every person we have, every dollar we have, even the very breath in our lungs, it all comes from God, right? And in times of hardship, we have an opportunity to see, am I really truly relying upon God as directly as I should or could? In 2 Timothy, at the end of uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy that we have, he talks about a guy named Alexander the coppersmith who did great harm to him. And then there was a, some sort of a fight. I mean, Paul always had groups and traveling companions and a large entourage. Some sort of fight happened. Some sort of split happened. And he says, at first, no one came to stand by me. Paul says, everybody deserted me. Everybody deserted me. But what is Paul's response? He says, may it not be charged against them. 
He says, the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me so that uh, through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Jumping down to verse 18, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. See, Paul's ultimate reliance was not on Alexander the coppersmith or any of these other ministry partners. His reliance in this beautiful moment, we get to see his reliance was actually deepened on just being on God alone. If you had no one and nothing else, if you had God, would he be enough for you? And so in these negative spaces, in these hardships, God is increasing our reliance upon him. And then number three, the one thing I confidently know, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes, Jesus is joining with us in our hardships. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was made like us in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And when we suffer and we go through these negative spaces and we go through these situations that we didn't anticipate, the enemy loves to whisper to us that we are alone. And it is a damnable lie from hell itself because Jesus Christ came in the flesh to live, to die, to rise again, to be with us. And now he has given us his Holy Spirit and we are not alone. Our God is with us. As we begin the season of Advent and looking at Christmas, Emmanuel means God with us. That's what this whole Christmas season is all about. You are not alone. You don't suffer alone. Jesus is joining you. He's making his presence available to you. He's making his comfort available to you. He's making his peace available to you. Will you see him? Will you have eyes to see and ears to hear that he is with you? So I want to close with three questions. And I encourage you to take these questions, ponder them in your own personal devotional time this week, your own time with the Lord, and ponder them with your group as you meet with others. The first question is this. When you read the Bible, do you look for Jesus in the negative spaces? Don't skip the hard parts. Ask, ask questions. Wow, this person was a real piece of work. How does this show me the need for Jesus? So read your Bible that way. Second question, a little more personal. When you look at your own life, do you see Jesus at work in the negative spaces? <laughs> thinking about that verse in James. Uh, count it all joy when you face various trials. Here's something you could try this week. Get some quiet time, get out your journal, get out a piece of paper, and just write out everything in your life that just stinks. And then, read them out loud and say, Lord, I thank you for this thing. Uh, if I like, sold a devotional book with that, I would sell zero copies, okay? Do it. Just try it. See what happens. You have my permission to light the list on fire when you're done, but start with... Rejoicing. Lord, these are hard things. These are difficult situations, but I'm going to thank you because in Christ, the negative spaces find meaning and find, find purpose. And then just last, last one, last question. Do you make space for reflection in order to experience Jesus' comforting presence? 
Some of you know, you know, my, my time of sabbatical that I had this, this summer and into the fall, one of the practices that really has deeply shaped my own experience of God is the practice of silence and solitude. And it's not complicated. It's just get alone and be quiet. Things that I don't do naturally. I'm loud and with people. And God's used this to help bubble up to the surface for me just things in my own heart, things in my own mind that I didn't even realize were there. You know, it's interesting. Even the practice of silence and solitude is itself a kind of negative space sort of practice. You know, reading the Bible is active. Coming to church and singing is active. Praying down a list is active. Being silent. Removing Noise, removing yourself from people. It's a negative space sort of practice. And getting into that space, what might the Lord want to speak to you? What might the Lord want to show you? How might he want to make his presence known to you? Even if the situation isn't going to be fixed in a moment, what if he's trying to remind you that he's with you personally through his spirit? And as we come to the table of the Lord and Pastor Jason leads us in communion here in a moment, I'm even just, just, think of the negative space that would have been the cross, the death of Jesus, this most negative thing that could have ever happened, being the greatest act of joy and love the world has ever seen for our salvation. So let's come to him now. Lord, we, we bring our hearts to you. Lord, we bring those negative spaces in our own hearts, places where we've struggled to see what you're doing, to struggle to understand what's going on. And Lord, I ask right now that you would ease our troubled hearts, that we would know that you're working on us, we would know that you're with us, and we would know that in the end, we're in Christ, and our future is incredibly bright. Be with us now as we eat and drink at the table and as we sing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.